Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk! Good morning and welcome to the middle of the week. This is Peter Lewis with Money Talk for Wednesday the 24th of January 2024. This podcast is sponsored by Surfing Group, which is headquartered in Singapore and offers online financial services to 30 million customers across 10 countries. In today's business and finance headlines, the Bank of Japan maintained its ultra-loose monetary policy at its first meeting this year in line with expectations. The BOJ kept its key short-term interest rate at minus 0.1% and retained the 1% upper limit on the 10-year Japanese government's bond yield. BOJ Governor Kazuo Ueda said the likelihood of achieving the 2% inflation target is gradually rising. Premier Li Chang has called for more effective measures to stabilise China's slumping stock market after the mainland's benchmark CSI 300 index hit a five-year low on Monday. Bloomberg reported Tuesday that policymakers are seeking to mobilise about 2 trillion yuan, that's $278 billion, mainly from the offshore accounts of Chinese state-owned enterprises as part of a stabilisation fund to buy shares onshore through the Hong Kong Exchange Link. They've also earmarked at least 300 billion yuan of local funds to invest in onshore shares. Polls are closing in the 2024 New Hampshire Republican primary, which has turned into a two-person race between Donald Trump and Nikki Haley, the former South Carolina governor, who later served as Mr. Trump's ambassador to the UN. A new Boston Globe-Suffolk University poll released Tuesday shows Mr. Trump now leads Miss Haley by 22 points at 59.6%, and that's up three points from the same poll on Saturday. BYD overtook Volkswagen as China's best-selling car brand in 2023. Shenzhen-based BYD clocked up 2.4 million new domestic car insurance registrations last year, giving it a countrywide market share of 11%, up 3.2 percentage points. BYD had overtaken Volkswagen as China's best-selling car brand on a quarterly basis earlier last year as it developed affordable and high-tech EVs, but the latest data shows that's now its status on a full-year basis. On today's programme, I'm joined by Enzio von Fahl, Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield, and Frederick Chu, Managing Director at Magnum Research. And with a view from Japan is John Byrne, Principal Economist at the Asian Development Bank. And if you want to get in touch with any questions or comments on the show, please go to my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com. U.S. stocks traded in a narrow range ahead of major corporate earnings and GDP and inflation data later this week. The S&P 500 closed at a fresh all-time high, advancing one-third of a percent to 4,865. The Nasdaq Composite rose 0.4% to 15,426. The Dow snapped a three-day winning streak and pulled back from record highs by a batch of weak corporate earnings. The 30 stock index lost 96 points, or a third of a percent, retreating below the 38,000 level that was crossed for the first time on Monday to 37,905. Alibaba's US traded shares gained 7.9% in New York, the most intraday since last July, after the New York Times reported that founder Jack Ma and Alibaba chairman Joe Tai have both been buying up shares in the company in recent months as the stock plunged. US Treasury yields firmed across the curve. The 10-year yield rose three basis points to 4.14%, while the 30-year climbed five basis points to 4.37% as the yield curve steepened. 
The US dollar index rose 0.2% to 103.55 on Tuesday. The yen strengthened as much as 0.8% to 147 at one stage against the dollar after the Bank of Japan left monetary policy unchanged and increased its core CPI estimate for 2025. But the boost was only brief as the Japanese currency quickly reversed course to end the US session a third of a percent weaker at 148.5 yen per dollar. The offshore yuan appreciated 0.4%, past 7.17 renminbi per dollar, hitting its highest level in nearly two weeks, following a renewed pledge by China's cabinet to stabilise the capital markets. Gold ended the day 0.4% firmer at $2,028 an ounce despite the dollar's gains. Brent crude oil was 0.6% lower at $79.55 a barrel. The price of Bitcoin sank as much as 3% on Tuesday, dipping below $39,000 for the first time since early December. Bitcoin has lost 15% of its value over the past two weeks since the SEC approved the launch of spot Bitcoin ETFs. Shares in Hong Kong posted their biggest daily gains this year following a call from China's Premier for forceful state support to halt the market route. The Hang Seng rose 2.6% Tuesday, or 393 points, to 15,354. Separately on Tuesday, China's video game regulator removed from its website draft rules that proposed controls on players' spending, boosting shares in Hong Kong-listed game developers Tencent and NetEase, and helping the Hang Seng Tech Index rise 3.7%. On the mainland, the CSI 300 index was up 0.4% on Tuesday after reaching a five-year low on Monday. Futures markets are pointing to the Hong Kong market moving higher again for the second day in a row. Uh, They're pointing to a gain of about 300 points for the Hang Seng at the open. That's 1.9%. Index should start trading around about 15,650. And you can get more details on the latest market movements in my daily newsletter, which you'll find at Peter Lewis Money Talk. Every Monday to Friday, this is Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Time to welcome our regular Wednesday morning correspondent, Enzio von Fahl, who is Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield. Morning to you, Enzio. Good morning, Peter. And we hope that shortly Frederick Chu from Magnum Research will be joining us, but we've got a few technical problems at the moment. So, NGO, let's start and talk about this so-called forceful forceful support for Chinese stocks, Premier Li Chang calling for more effective measures to stabilise the stock markets after the main CSI 300 index hit a five-year low. Bloomberg is reporting that policymakers are seeking to mobilise about 2 trillion yuan, which is going to come from the offshore accounts of Chinese state-owned enterprises as part of a stabilisation fund to buy shares onshore through the Hong Kong exchange links. And they've earmarked also at least 300 billion yuan of local funds to invest in onshore shares through China Securities Finance Corps and Central Hujin Investments, which are the state-owned funds. So Enzio... A number of problems going on on the mainland, and yeah. the latest, uh, the latest proposal now is to create a stabilisation fund to boost the stock market. What do you make of that? Well, it sounds a bit to me like a like a um, like a bailout, and yeah. I with on a sinking ship, and I just don't. I I think this has a number of concerns, really, for the common prosperity of Chinese citizens. Basically, um, first of all, I think that. The general problem in China is less cyclical 
and, and doesn't need these kinds of measures. It needs a very fundamental shift in this party state capitalism, which they've introduced, which I keep on rattling on about, whereby the state basically tells the individual private sector companies what to do. And then the, the, the problem there is that the private sector has to create demand-driven jobs. Um, in other words, where the private market sees job sees demand it, it wants more workers in those sectors in this case the government is coming in and saying we want you to do to create jobs in these and these sectors because we know where market demand is headed that's just flawed from the get-go so i think that's the the real reason why people are holding off the market even if they the press keeps on rattling on about the fact that it's just um a cyclical issue where if they pump in more money and 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 do more infrastructure spending, the thing is going to take off again. I just don't think so. Now, I, the second point, excuse me. I, you said bailout, which is a good description of it. I, I was going to yeah. add that not only is it a bailout, it's a bailout using the funds of state-owned enterprises. In other words, company funds to go and bail out the stock markets. Yeah, you see, and that's when one doesn't even know whether they're going to ask private, successful private sector firms to also maybe help in this bailout. Um, mm. I, I just don't, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's very worrying because, and I also don't know just technically why Xi Jinping is not involved in this discussion. It seems to be, he seems to be leaving everything to Prime Minister Li Chiang. Um, I'm not uh, acquainted enough with Chinese politics to know who would be calling the shots, but I would have thought it would be President Xi, not Prime Minister Li. Uh, and also, it, it seems to me that, uh, I think as you're alluding to there, that th this doesn't really solve the fundamental problem of what is no. causing the market to collapse in the first place, which is things like deflation, the property sector, the lack of government initiatives to really try and stimulate uh, the, the yes. economy and get it out of deflation. Um, none of this changes because of a stock market bailout, really, does it? No, it doesn't. It's just it's, and that's why we're warning people. If you're, if if you think that this is time to buy into China, caveat emptor, buyer beware, because it just it's going to just be a short-term blip up indeed, as we saw yesterday in Hong Kong. Um, but it can't be anything of lasting value for exactly the point that you that you're mentioning. The ship is sinking, and just by getting two more cans to bail it out a little bit isn't going to help the overall problem at all. Mm. And then this is not without precedence, is it? Because uh, the Chinese government loves meddling in the stock market, even at the best of times. But it, it's yes. known for bailouts in the past to try and uh, stabilize um, the markets. They haven't worked particularly well in the past, have they? So is, is there any reason to think that uh, this time is going to be different? No, not with this bailout of, some, of seemingly about 2.3 trillion renminbi that's against the, the loss of six trillion renminbi in the markets, I think you point out in your notes, Peter. Mm. And so I think it's 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 too little, it's it's and it's misdirected. Um because the um again the problem is this party state capitalism, which just is is part of the that's part of the mindset now. And also I think you're trying to you're saying, well, actually we have a couple of cyclical issues here, housing markets, deflationary pressures, as you were saying thus leading to a bleak earnings outlook, none of this will be alleviated by just dumping more money into the markets. It just can't happen. Mm. And if this rally fails to hold, mm. is there then the risk that actually it just gets worse and we end up in a further um, downward spiral in, in sentiment? 
Yeah, I think there's a there's a term for it in Penny. I'm not sure what it is anymore. Uh, sort of you double up on the losses because, well, if I've already gone this far, I may as well go a little bit further mm. um, and, and keep on baiting it out. So um, I, I think that that's, it's, it's just it's a very dangerous tack. If they then allow the Rimbabwe to fall in the guise of promoting exports, well, that's, of course, going to get the hackles of the U.S. up and the trade war with Trump. We can discuss that later if you want, obviously, once he wins again, which I'm afraid is my conclusion, but that's me. And, and why do you think the Chinese government is doing this, Enzio? It, 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 obviously, um, the market has seen some quite sharp declines this year. Do they see it as a stability mm. risk? Is Maybe that's one of the reasons why they're doing it, because the poor old Chinese investor is not only losing on his house price and his home price, is losing in the stock market as mm. well. Are, are they worried about maybe um, how the public is going to react to that? I think they're worried, but it's this, it's the trend that I've seen worldwide that I call oil and water. And oil is the government that sits at the top loftily decreeing things. Indeed, as we see in Hong Kong, as we see in America, governments are out of touch with the populace whom they're dealing with. In America, it's particularly awful where you have fat cats running around in the lobbying halls of Washington, D.C., and then poor people who can't even afford to feed themselves on the streets of Washington, D.C., and San Francisco, etc., we know about all that. My point, my point is that government is getting out of touch with the, with the population, and so it is conjuring up things that it thinks will solve the problem without actually consulting the people themselves. And I think this is a, a very prima facie case of that, where some government officials who have no market experience say, well, if we just sort of chuck a few renminbi at the market, it will go up again. That's not how, how traders and certainly not international fund managers think. Mm. As you know, I, I mean, this is almost like becoming a nationalised stock market, isn't it? Um, and and yeah. you know, we get yeah. uh, every time the market goes down, we get uh, the the plunge protection team jumps in to try and save people from themselves. But it it just seems to me that it it makes things worse. It doesn't really um, improve market sentiment, other than maybe for a short period of time. Well, all the more so, again, if, if the government is going in there with this party state capitalism, which they've they've avowed to and there are many books written on it, um, just stating that we, the government, know where demand is, we know where jobs should be created, and these are the industries with, with which we wish to push down. Of course, America does this also a little bit. We kind of know that, but mm. not, with, not with this sort of vehemence. And that, that's that's the... In my mind, the fundamental problem going way beyond the property housing, the property woes, and the deflationary pressures. Mm. And of course, the uh, the other issue um, w with all of this is that even if um, even if it works and, and they do actually manage to stabilise the market, mm. there are still all the same underlying problems in the economy, the, which which the government seems very reluctant to do anything about. It talks sort of a good game, doesn't it? But we don't really see any concrete action. I'm wondering, is, is this going to be the same thing even when it comes to this market stabilisation? It's talk at the moment. Will it actually will it actually happen? Well, that I, I don't I don't see how it can happen because you can't bail out the stock market and the property sector at the same time. You just don't have enough money for that. Mm. And I'm I'm afraid that you're going to find a Jap a Japanization of the Chinese economy in the in the idea the idea being that the growth just gets stuck at not point at at a very very low rate 
Um, I, for one, don't believe these 5.2 and 5.1 and 4.9 growth forecasts. It's all this digit bashing mm -hmm. where people really, none of us know what the numbers really consist of. You know that as well as I do. Mm. And of course, the amount actually is not that huge either. I know it sounds a big number, but mm. it doesn't even make up what has been lost in market cap from basically early December yeah. to, to now. So um, even if they manage to get the stabilization fund together, um, it, it's still you know less than what has been lost over the last couple of months. And throwing good money after bad. Absolutely. Mm. I, I, I believe the total loss since the start of the year is six trillion? I may be wrong. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's it's sort of in that ballpark, and they and they're pumping in two point three trillion, um, two hundred two trillion from the Chinese state-owned banks, as you said, and then another three hundred billion worth of local funds. Well, God knows what that means. Mm. And, and the other question over all of this is, how are the state-owned enterprises going to come up with two trillion yuan from their offshore accounts, and why? Will they choose to invest it through the Hong Kong Exchange League, I suppose, because they're told to do it. But um, where are they going to come up with this two trillion yuan from their offshore accounts? Well, it could only be through through less offshore investing and, and, and through less less international activity. So, again, it goes back to this whole decoupling thesis, though, I mean, in a very minor way, because obviously they have more than two trillion offshore. But um, mm. I think it is it is that decoupling. Yeah. And we've also reached another milestone, which maybe is one of the things in the back of the minds of the uh, the Chinese authorities. India's stock market capitalization yes. has overcome Hong yes. Kong's for the first time. Um, now, the combined value of listed shares on Indian exchanges reached 4.33 trillion US dollars as of Monday's close, compared with 4.29 yeah. trillion for Hong Kong. So that makes India now the fourth biggest equity market uh, globally. Uh, and pushes uh, Hong Kong further um, down the list. And offshore funds are pouring money into the Indian uh, stock market, mm. which has helped propel it uh, for, um, to almost, well, it did reach record highs a couple of weeks ago. So um, I suppose this is another interesting milestone, isn't it? It's an interesting milestone also because, according to my economic clock, it's doing pretty well. They've got an excess supply of money. That's why the market's going up in an excess demand for goods. That's why earnings are going up. And so the investment cycle, according to, to a very prestigious think tank, is about to turn up um, thanks to health, healthy bank and corporate balance sheets. Um, private organizations have already said investment plans of over $200 billion. That's the highest in a decade, and roughly double the value of 19, 2019 in real terms. So there's, the place is really on fire in a good sense. And I think a lot of that is because the, um, the they're looking at growth rates of, of long-term growth rates of 6% plus, but those would be actual growth, not conjured numbers that I just suspect have to be coming out of China. I'm not a, I'm not a buyer of this, this 5% stuff in China, but India's 6% I can buy because they're digitalizing the economy. That means it's everybody's getting a bank account and it's just becoming a lot more efficient. So that's a huge structural shift. Mm. in the Indian economy. So the, so the rally that we're seeing in India is really justified it's, on the it, fundamentals. It's for real, yeah, because the economic time is good, yeah. Mm. And, I suppose and that, that's going to stay. They've got the elections coming up, you know. And I suppose we could also argue that the slump in China is justified on the basis of the fundamentals as well. Well, well put also the political slump with Mr. Trump and all that, having what he'd initiated, what's what keeps on going on this China bashing in the States is this de-risking 
away from China. So, of course, you have more direct investment going into India because the English, the standard of English in many of the provinces apparently is very, very good. Mm. Let, let's switch our attention, Andrew, to Japan. The Bank of Japan's maintained yes. its ultra-loose monetary policy at its first meeting this year, kept short-term interest rates at minus 0.1%, retained the 1% upper limit uh, on the 10-year Japanese government bond yield. That was all pretty well widely um, expected. But Bank of Japan Governor Kazuo said the likelihood of achieving the 2% of inflation target is gradually rising. Is that uh, sort of a, um, a hint that maybe he's going to uh, start raising rates sooner rather than later? He will, I believe. Um, but I, again, I'm, I'm not trying to be sort of Mr. Know-it-all, but I, I, again, I just think that the the logic is flawed because the reason for the rise in the in inflation seems to be very much the oil price, where you can't dictate rising rates in Japan aren't going to do anything to the Saudi oil output or to the U.S. shale output. So I think that's kind of problem number one. I would say that the economic time in Japan is good. It's got an excess supply of money and diminishing excess supply of goods. In other words, you will soon see an excess demand for goods. But again, I would caution against rising inflation because of the cyclicality, the fact is that the labor markets are very tight already. And mm. even if you raise rates, it is not going to diminish the labor wages, the shunto things which come in in April, I believe, the, the wage negotiations, because people will just say, well, there are too few workers around, so we want to raise the wages. Um, it's a little bit like what we're seeing in the States. Kids don't want to work anymore. So you see very tight labor markets, but for supply side reasons. And mm. that's then going to raise the, so even if he raises rates, it won't do a, a bit of good except to increase the value of the yen. That of course then decreases imported inflation. We get that, um, but it won't have much effect on that very, very tight labor market. And that's really where monetary policy goes in terms of trying to fit, trying to get the labor market cooled off so people don't spend as much. So. They're whole, it's, it's riddled with a lot of sort of obfuscations, I'm afraid. And he really seems to be um, hitching to the wagon of rate uh, of wage increases, yes. doesn't he? Which is something, yes. of course, he can't himself or the Bank of Japan can't actually do anything about. But nevertheless, it seems that wage increases are going to be the major driver over when negative interest rates come to an end in Japan. Yeah, I think so. But again, I'm just suggesting that the that the reason for the rising wages is because there's just this labor shortage. It's not It's not because there's excess demand for labor. It's just, well, there is excess demand, but it's from the supply side, which is a little bit more arcane. But so you will, so even if he raises rates, that will not dampen the wage hikes because the, the labor shortage is still there. So if you wanted to uh, put your neck on the block a bit, when, when do you think rates are going to start to increase? As of the Shunto wage increases in April of this year. I oh, think okay. that's, that, that's when you will see it's the first half of this year. Let's, let's be fuzzy. So what's this going to mean for the yen? That's, that's the, uh, the, the, the asset that really shifts most, doesn't it, in, in, uh, in line yeah. with the Bank of Japan's got to thinking? Rise, got to rise. Got to rise. Because you'll find the, with the US rates remaining low-ish being, um, or, or starting with, with the outlook for America, rate cuts, I still believe, late next year, or if not early, the following in 2025, um, but with the outlook for the rates in the U.S. going down and the outlook for the rates in Japan going up, of course, you're going to find p traders, Forex traders, obviously, um, discounting that and buying the yen ahead of the event. That then, in turn, 
leads to deflation. So a lot of the Bank of Japan's work is done because of less imported inflation. So again, the, when they raise the rates, it is not what we see in the States with these fairly hefty jumps like we've just seen with the Fed funds over the past cycle. But it's, it's a much more gradual Japan. It takes time. Even when I was covering Japan, it was always something to do it very, very slowly and very, very, really, really pokily. Mm. So this is gonna um, this is gonna bring an end to the carry trade, then, isn't it? Really, because we're gonna have a, a narrowing rate differential between the U.S. and Japan, and a and a strengthening yen. I think so. It depends on if the yen goes into an overshoot mode. Um, I don't. I, I, many people say that the dollar is going to get replaced by the ribby and the yen and all this. I'm not a buyer just because the sophistication of the U.S. market is so great. Certainly in your old world of bonds, Peter, I think you know that you would agree that it is so deep and and structured that you just can't replace that by saying, oh, the yen's going to replace it. So I think it's going to go up, but I don't. It's currently at about 140 something, isn't it? it and I, I, I see it maybe at about 130, but not a lot more than that, frankly. Okay. And I'm it's one- not going to go back to 110. What's it going to do for the profits, profitability of Japanese companies? Um, I, in my book on trade myths, d- determined that exchange rates don't really matter very much for highly sophisticated exports because they're quite price insensitive because they're so specialized that a pr- you're, not, you're not exporting junk like maybe the, in, like maybe the developing world is. And so, or, or price sensitive commodity stuff. And so, I'd like, like clothes and, and shirts and bed sheets and this kind of stuff. So, I don't think it's going to do as much on the trade front as people wish to believe. The normal, the, 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 the mainstream thinking is a rising yen will thwart exports. Well, if that were the case, then how come Japan, since it used to be 400 yen to the dollar, now it's 150 or 140 or so, how come Japan has always had a trade surplus? Whilst in the case of America, a falling dollar has had a trade deficit. Answer mm. is the U.S. multinationals and China have been very worldwide have been very successful. They've replaced American exports to China, to Japan, etc. So I think the same thing you're going to find with Japan. Okay, and finally, let me just get some thoughts on the U.S. We've got yeah. the New Hampshire primary going on. The polls are starting to close now uh, yes. in New Hampshire. Do you think we need to start preparing ourselves for President Trump Part Two? Absolutely, and I, I say that with a lot of trepidation because there will be more chaos around, I believe, and next to the political things of possibly pulling out of the Ukraine. Just on the road economics of it, the he wants to make permanent these. 2017 individual tax cuts that he put in, they were supposed to expire at the end of 2025, if my memory serves me. So if he keeps those in, then you will find inflationary pressure is rising yet again. The bond yields rise in the U.S. That again will strengthen the dollar. So we have an offset to that strengthening yen, right, because of rising U.S. bond yields. And um, that then means that the... um, But in... Imported inflation in America falls because of the rising dollar. Okay. okay so you have a stronger dollar and um, rising bond yields. That can't be so hot for the stock market, I would have thought, 
if the rates rise a lot. I mean, it does seem to be clear, doesn't it, that if you follow some of the policies that he did in his first term, mm. it's going to be far more inflationary this time around than it was the first time, where maybe the, the economic circumstances were, were different. But right now, we've got a there tight, was there tight was labour market. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. It's going to have a problem, isn't it? Well, uh, it's very much just because he's... Um, it, it, it's very much this that the labor markets are, are, are tight. And again, because a lot of people just don't want to work. It's a new phenomenon that, that our generation just doesn't know, uh, just, just doesn't, isn't au fait with. Um, and again, by making these personal tax cuts permanent and probably even in allowing the millionaires to get even more tax breaks, um, you will find the bond yields rising quite massively. And that would, of course, then drive the dollar up, if anything. And the other thing that we've got to take into account, or businesses need to take into account, is his 10% tax that he's saying is going to um, oh, impose tariff, on yes. all imports into into yeah. the US. I mean, that's going to have major ramifications as well, isn't it? Well, that again, of course, drives, so it, even though, so it negates the, that's a good point, it negates the effect of a stronger dollar, because the, if the stronger dollar cheapens imports by 10%, but then he goes and puts a tariff of 10% on all imports, then of course you have not point not as as the as the thing except then you have a massive dislocation of supply chains of supply chains into the US yet again so he's going to, it'll be i think it's going to be very chaotic that's my key concern and i sh- should imagine there must be a few asian governments uh, trembling in their boots as well at the th- a thought of what this could yeah. mean well it will just it will just mean that there will be a reverse going back to asia going even going back to china it, it, mm. because just because China isn't growing a lot at present doesn't mean that it has stopped growing at all. It is a huge economy. We know that. And what is often missed in the direct investment story is that when I was doing my doctorate on direct investments, companies go abroad to service the local market. They don't go abroad to make cheap exports. That's actually the that's the secondary story. The real one is to support the local market. Well, with Chinese incomes over time rising, you will find even more local demand for cars, for fridges, for washing machines, all that kind of stuff. And that's that's where this re-Asianization comes in, China included, in my mind. Okay. Well, as always, Enzio, always great to hear your thoughts on a, a Wednesday morning. That's Enzio von Fahl, who's Capital Preservation Specialist at Financial Shield. I'm joined now by John Byrne, who is Principal Economist at the Asian Development Bank. Morning, John. Good morning, Peter. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. So the Bank of Japan uh, left its monetary policy unchanged, both its uh, short-term interest rate at minus 0.1% and also its yield curve control um, policy. But the one thing I think that stood out was Bank of Japan Governor Kazuo Ueda said the likelihood of achieving the 2% inflation target is gradually rising. What, uh, what, What do you put on that and what's he hinting at there? Yes, well, I think if we look at the inflation figures and the projections um, released by the Bank of Japan, it's actually the case that inflation is expected to undershoot the target um, in 2025. Now, I think um, what will be an important factor in achieving the sustainability of a 2% target over the medium term will be what happens, of course, with wage negotiations in spring. So in the face of... uh, weakening in, in inflation, it will be necessary to um, see some pickup in, in wage growth uh, in April, and particularly uh, from the perspective of the, of the SMEs. 
So we know that the large firms are likely to agree um, some rises in wages, which will help to address uh, the, the problem with real wage growth, which is apparent uh, for quite some time in Japan. But what would be crucial to affect the overall level of uh, real wages will be whether small, uh, medium-sized enterprises can can do that. And that will really dictate whether um, inflation will or will not um, undershoot or overshoot the target. So that will really uh, be an important factor going forward. And, and are firms sort of trying to resist this pressure um, to raise wages? Well, I think from the perspective of large firms, I think the consensus is that wage growth is going to be beneficial um, in terms of stimulating demand. And this can obviously have uh, important uh, positive economic effects for the firms. But I think for the smaller firms, it's it's really crucial, as I said, um, employment uh, by small firms accounts for 70% of the labor force. So unless we would see um, some wage growth uh, by the small firms as well, then at the overall level, um, it's likely to not address the problem that we're seeing with uh, real wages. And there, therefore, we would continue to see some problems with domestic demand um, and inflation would therefore continue to be driven largely by cost plus pressures, which makes it difficult for, for the Bank of Japan to operate monetary policy, which, of course, is a, a demand management tool, essentially. Mm. I mean, the Bank of Japan's in the situation where it's, it's really putting a lot of store, almost all, all store on this, on, on the wage negotiations, which is, but it's something that the Bank of Japan itself can't do anything about. That's a very important point. And I think, you know, the government is trying to do what it can um, to address the situation as well through uh, issues around tax tax breaks uh, for firms that would be able to uh, implement some movement on wages. Um, but as you said, it's um, difficult for the Bank of Japan to really affect what happens with, uh, with wages directly. But I think um, it would be in the interest of... Uh, longer term growth to, to stimulate this soft wage price type of spiral and um, which could contribute to aggregate demand. And, you know, you're very well aware that even though monetary policy has been highly accommodative in Japan for for many, many years, uh, the pickup in domestic demand has been a, a problem. So um, it really makes it challenging from a monetary policy perspective to affect aggregate output as a result of that. So uh, support on the fiscal side will be will be crucial, I think, uh, going forward in 2024, 2025. It, it almost seems strange that the wages aren't actually going up more than they are, given that there is a labour shortage in Japan and given the demographics are working um, against the labour force, so the, the labour force is shrinking because of uh, the demographics, you would think that firms would want to um, hang on to the workers that they've got. Maybe they're struggling to find new workers as well, which would automatically push wages up. That's right. I think in, in some respects, it's a cultural situation, which is uh, particular to Japan, whereby um, you know, firms are reluctant reluctant to pass on any cost pressures uh, to consumers, and this holds for any pickup in wages as well. So it would be 
necessary for some of those uh, wage rises to be passed on to consumers in terms of prices. And, and of course, that is what the ultimate goal would be to to generate this t- sort of a soft wage price spiral and um, enable um, aggregate demand and potential outputs to, to benefit as a result of that. And also, of course, uh, stimulate um private consumption and investment which which has been problematic over the years um but you know i think it's a really difficult proposition particularly for the small firms i think the larger firms it's it's a little bit um less uncertain as regards the outlook but as i said um smaller firms remain in a difficult situation at the moment and this is also not helped by the the weaker external environment that we will um, likely see during 2024, which of course is affecting exports. And even in spite of the significant depreciation of the yen that we have observed for for some time, we are not seeing this translate into net exports because of a number of factors, not only the weaker external environment, but also because of um, the shift in production offshore um, in terms of manufacturing uh, over the past decade or so in Japan for for various reasons, including those related to uh, risk management. Did you get the sense that there was a change in tone from Governor Ueda in his press conference yesterday, and it was maybe slightly more hawkish than we've seen um, in, in the past? Well, I think it's it's difficult to read too much into it. Um, what I would say is that a lot seems to be hinging on what happens in the wage negotiations in April. Um, I think the decision that um, we had yesterday was very much expected, not only because of uh, what's happening with inflation, but also because of you know uncertainty as regards the knock-on effects from, from the earthquake. Um, so it would be... Um, not appropriate to change rates, but really because of of the outlook for inflation, which is which is coming down. Um, so, I think, yeah, I mean, we will have to see what happens in April, of course, and this would dictate whether we would eventually see some normalisation in policy. Mm. I mean, the swaps markets, they're pricing in a 45% probability of a rate hike uh, by the April meeting, and then that's rising to 100% by the July meeting. Do, do you think that's about right? Is, uh, is, is the market uh, on, on the nose there? Well, I think it's around 50-50 for April then in that case. I think mm. it's um, very difficult to to you know, predict what will happen um, because you're essentially predicting what will happen with the wage negotiations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if we look at what happened last year, I think wage negotiations yielded uh, nominal wage rises of around 3.6%, um, which of course was in excess of inflation. But um, for small firms, the, the wage rises were much uh, lower than that of around 1.4%. So, you know, I think whether we see... Uh, uh, a normalization in policy in April, yes, I would agree that it's 50-50 probably because um, maybe it would even be less than that. Um, but it really depends on what happens. Looking further into into July, I think 
Um, I would not make a projection that far, given the uncertainty uh, around uh, what would happen in spring at the moment. And what does this uncertainty mean for the yen? When uh, Governor Ueda was speaking yesterday afternoon, the yen spiked higher um, initially, but then it quickly gave up all those gains and ended uh, the New York session uh, lower. Um, what, What do you think it means for the yen? Okay, so as regards the yen it's really driven by both external and internal factors, right? So um, to a large extent, we're, we're talking about the spread between US and uh, Japanese rates. Now, at the moment, um, given that we are expecting some uh, easing in policy by the Fed, this will narrow the spread and support the end. On the internal side, the, the fact that um, we have not uh, seen any normalization, I think was largely priced in by markets. Markets were not expecting any normalization at this point. So I think from the perspective of internal factors, um, there was not much impact on the yen. I think the yen continues to be uh, largely driven by external factors. So what, what's happening with, uh, with US inflation, essentially? Um, should we see, for example, some um, unexpected developments with inflation in the US? This would uh, prolong the, the widening uh, stance in that uh, yield spread, and that would obviously uh, contribute to a depreciation of the yen. But as I said, we, we expect some narrowing in this spread for for um, the reasons related to the inflationary outlook in the US, and, and this should support the yen. But um, this would be supported even more so um, should, uh, should rates be tightened uh, it, it directly by Bank of Japan. So I suppose this means the carry trade is going to come to an end, doesn't it? Because you've got that narrowing US-Japan yield differential or strengthening yen. Um, things not so favourable anymore for that carry trade. Yes, well, I mean, we will see what happens in that regard. We, we need to remember that, um, you know, whilst rates are projected to ease in the US, uh, we will still be at a relatively high uh, interest rate in in the US. So I think we will still be around the 4% level, which will be still substantially uh, higher than uh, rates that would prevail in in Japan, even in a scenario of of, uh, tightening our our normalization in monetary policy. Like it's not going to, you know, it's not going to close that gap significantly in the in the short to medium term. John, thank you very much indeed for your analysis on that. That's John Byrne, who's Principal Economist at the Asian Development Bank. You're listening to Peter Lewis's Money Talk. Money Talk. Thank you for listening this morning. Just a reminder once again to take a look at my website, peterlewismoneytalk.substack.com, where you'll find my daily newsletter with a lot more business and finance news to go with this show. I'll be back tomorrow when my guests will be Andrew Ferris, the CEO of Econosis Advisory, and Louisa Fock, China Equity Strategist at the Bank of Singapore. With a view from Taiwan is Ross Feingold, Director of Research at Cyrus Consulting in Taipei. Please catch me tomorrow. Money Talk.